Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to our Redeeming Hope Sunday stream. We're so grateful that you would join us. As you can see, my surroundings are a little different. I'm recording this from home today. The uh, environment is a little different than we normally have for our recording because don't know if you heard, we have some great news. We added a new member to our church family this last week as Autumn Young was born to Josh and Rachel in Nashville. And so we congratulate them. We're excited with them. And uh, we're all looking forward to having her uh, among us and growing among us in the days to come. A few announcements before I get into the word. Number one, we're going to have a church cookout on July 10th. Uh, the site is still to be determined. The Rotary Park was booked up for the summer. Uh, might end up having that at Josh and Rachel's, but we'll have to see how much sleep they're getting with, uh, with Autumn on the scene now. But stay tuned. Mark your calendars. July 10th, we're going to have a church cookout. We'll have another Hope Youth Gathering Saturday, July 23rd, right here at the Levandusky Home. So we look forward to that. So um, if you know someone in middle school or high school, uh, we welcome you to participate in that and join us on July 23rd. Uh, We are going to have a family day, uh, hopefully right in the parking lot of uh, the Y. We're still working on the details of that. Uh, Bouncy house, barbecues, maybe some Uh, different games that uh, people from our church and our community can come and uh, just have a good time with their families. So make sure you mark your calendar for August 21st. That's the day we're planning on for that. And invite a friend, uh, invite a a neighbor, invite another family to come along and join us on that day in our gathering and for the festivities, uh, hopefully in the parking lot. Uh, But again, we'll, uh, we'll give you more details as they come to light in the days to come. Uh, If you'd like to give to Redeeming Hope, you can give on our website at redeeminghope.org backslash give. Uh, We are grateful to all those who support us as we serve the Lord here in this city of Clarksville. Today we are continuing our series, Hidden Grace, Lessons from the Life of Joseph. And today we're going to be in Genesis 39 uh, as uh, we get into this part of Joseph's story where he's in Potiphar's house. And the title of today's message is Temptations at Potiphar's House, Part 1. So if you'd read with me Genesis 39, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. We're going to read verses 1 through 23. Uh, And if you want to open with me to your uh, your Bibles or your Bible app, uh, you can follow along. And uh, and I do want to give a shout out to uh, uh, Tim Keller again. Uh, This sermon series is influenced by his series on Joseph. And so just a reminder of that to give credit and show gratitude for that brother uh, as we continue in this series here. Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Remember, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. 
From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has been entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me! But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew uh, has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave, your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him his kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, your truth, your spirit, in your word. We bow. We ask that you'd speak to us and build us up in our faith in Christ, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in this series so far, uh, we've looked at Joseph's suffering at the hand of his brothers and how they uh, betrayed him and sold him into slavery. But in that part of the story... Uh, we see several things that we've, we've talked about in the first three messages of the series. We saw hidden brokenness. Joseph was broken. His family was broken. And then we watched their family uh, implode with all this sort of hidden lava underneath this mountain that just blew the top off this mountain. Secondly, we see the hidden plans of God. God appears to be nowhere in the story of Joseph. You know, he's not even mentioned up until this part of the story. God wasn't even mentioned in Joseph's story, but what we learn is that God's silence is not absence. God was saving Joseph from becoming a wicked person and sending Joseph to Egypt to become the savior of his family. And then the last thing we looked at in the first part of Joseph's story was uh, the hidden patterns of grace. We see that Joseph is a picture of Jesus Christ. Just as Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, sold for silver, as he suffered in darkness and rose to the right hand of the Pharaoh to deliver his family. So Jesus was betrayed by his brothers, sold for silver, 
suffered in darkness and rose to the right hand of the Father to save his church. And aren't you glad? Jesus is our Joseph. Early in the book of Genesis, and we're in Genesis 39 now, right? Early on in the book of Genesis, it's full of miracles, full of visions, the voice of God speaking, full of appearances of God and of angels. But here at the end of Genesis, almost nothing. It's like God's activity just flatlines. But God is there. And finally, finally, in Genesis 39 and verse 2, God is mentioned. And he's mentioned the same way in this text three or four times. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. Suffering, pain, darkness, trials, trouble, confusion. But the Lord was with Joseph. And that is our great promise as well. You know, the last thing Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended to heaven was he said, surely I am with you always to the end of the age. You know, the withness of God, the fact that he is with us is one of the greatest promises in the gospel. You might remember uh, in, ex- in the book of Exodus, when, when Moses was leading God's people uh, in the wilderness, Moses said, if you don't go with us, don't, if your presence doesn't go with me, don't send me, don't send us. But if you are with us, I'll go. So the witness of God, the fact, the knowledge that God was with them to defend them, to guard them, to guide them, to, to protect them, to empower them, is one of the great promises of the gospel. And so here we have, again, we see that the Lord was with Joseph. You know, I, I um, have this game I play with my kids, especially when they're young, called Tickle Monster. Maybe you have some version of it in your family. And it's where I go downstairs, we turn off all the lights, and then the kids count to 30, and they have to come downstairs and find me. And um, they always think, before we play the game, they always think that they'll be courageous enough uh, to, to play that game. Uh, let's play Tickle Monster. I'm like, the last time we played... I just ended up hiding for like 10 minutes and you, you wouldn't even come downstairs. Oh no, this time it's just, dad, it's just you, dad. We'll come down. We'll do it. Sure enough, I turn off all the lights. I go downstairs. I hide and I just hear them arguing and debating, you know, who's going to go first or whether or not they're going to go at all. And most of the time that's, <laughs> that's how the game ends. Occasionally they'll uh, be brave enough to sprint into, you know, one of the rooms and I'll jump out and tickle monster and attack them and tickle them fun thing we do. No, no matter how much they insist that they'll be able to do it, for them to actually be willing to take that final step, they always, always, always need somebody with them. The kids wouldn't do it alone. They needed a sibling, an older sibling, or their mother. And so the Lord was with Joseph in this darkness as he went downstairs, so to speak, into the darkness. The Lord was with him. As you go downstairs into the darkness, The Lord is with you. Jesus said, I am with you. So it looks like God is absent, but God is there. And now finally, the Bible tells us that he is there, that Joseph is not on his own, that God is with him, that God has his back. What's the point here? I'm going to quote Tim Keller again. Often when God seems the most hidden, he's working the most for us. Now, the last time, We saw this in Joseph's sufferings as we looked at uh, Genesis 37. But here in Genesis 39, what we see is that God is with Joseph 
in his temptations. And there's three temptations at Potiphar's house that we're going to look at the next three weeks. You might call it the beginning, the middle, and the end. Three temptations. Number one, what we're going to call the power temptation. That's what we're going to look at today. And then we see sexual temptation, obviously with Potiphar's wife. And then the third one, which I'll wait to tell you what exactly that temptation is. We're just going to call it the hardest temptation of all. Uh, And we'll look at that in a few weeks. This first temptation is easy to miss. This, This temptation of power or power temptation. Now, where is Joseph? Joseph is in Potiphar's house. Who is Potiphar? The Bible calls him the captain of the guard. So he is not just the chief of security. He's the captain of the guard. This is the same title given to a Babylonian general that destroys Jerusalem in 2 Kings 25. So Potiphar was probably the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. This is a man of great influence and great power. And Joseph has come into this seat of power, this seat of influence, this seat of authority. Potiphar was one of the most powerful men in one of the most powerful kingdoms in earth at that time. And and so Joseph has come into this center of power. And the question this passage gives us insight into and the temptation that Joseph had is this. How do you use your power and influence? Let's look at Potiphar's wife first. You know, she's a woman of influence. She's married to one of the most powerful men in Egypt. How does she use her powerful How does she use her power and influence? Well, it says in the Bible, she came to Joseph and said, come to bed with me. She actually demanded, come to bed with me. But as we read the text, we miss the the forcefulness of what she was saying in English. Because there's only two words in the Hebrew, and they're both imperative. They're they're, They're both a command. So it basically means, what she's basically saying is, sex now. So, It's about sex, and we're going to look at that next week. But behind it, really, it's it's about power and how she's choosing to use her position of influence and power. And what we find is that her heart has been completely corrupted and intoxicated by the power that she lives in. And so we're going to summarize Potiphar's wife like this. She's using her power selfishly to fill her own appetites and her own needs. And we see this often in society today, don't we? I mean, just look at today's top 100 album covers or music videos, and you'll see a theme. You'll see people using their power, their gifts, their sex appeal to sell albums and gain attention all in the name of marketing and art and music. And so that's what we see in Potiphar's wife. She's using her sex appeal. She's using her, her body. She's using, she's using the gifts, that, the natural gifts she has. I mean, she's probably a beautiful woman. Right? She's using her natural beauty. She's using the influence she has as Potiphar's wife selfishly for her own appetites and her own gain. Now let's talk about Joseph. He also had a lot of power from Potiphar and being in this place and he also has a lot of gifts. He has leadership gifts. He, he, he seems to uh, be strong and, and command authority with his words. You know, he's, he's giving commands out to different workers, in the first case, in Potiphar's house, and then in the prison. People listen to him. So, you know, he's good with his speech. He's, he's got these leadership gifts. The Lord has given him dreams. So he, he has this 
this prophetic understanding of how things ought to be. He's got a lot of power. He's got a lot of influence. He's got a lot of gifts. And verse four calls him an attendant and the overseer of Potiphar's house. It's the same word used to describe Joshua's relationship to Moses as Joshua was sort of one of Moses' closest associates, uh, if not one of his right-hand guys, so to speak, as Moses led the Israelites through the wilderness. Joseph was a COO of a major business. He was a, a chief operating officer of this major business, so to speak, in Egypt in that time. And what do we see in verse five? Everybody's blessed because of Joseph. Things are going well because of Joseph. So how do we summarize how Joseph used his power? He did not use his power selfishly. He used his power to bless and serve others. A household that was not usually blessed by God in this manner was blessed through Joseph and through the way he used his power and influence and his gifts. And what God is doing here is so, off, so obvious, I think sometimes we miss the application of it. So I'm going to read a quote from English pastor Dick Lucas uh, on this idea of how God is using Joseph. <clears throat> he says, if you were to go up to a book table and see a biography with the title, The Man God Uses or The Woman God Uses, you would immediately think it was a story of a missionary or a minister or some specialist in some sort of spiritual work like evangelizing or leading Bible studies. That's because the church has conditioned you to think this way. But in fact, what you have here in Joseph at this point is essentially a highly successful businessman. He's not a preacher. He's not a missionary. He's not leading a Bible study. And yet God is using him mightily. In the short and long term, I think that being a preacher, a missionary, leading a Bible study group in many ways is easier. There's a certain spiritual glamour in doing it, but it is very much harder to get Christians to see that God is willing to greatly use men and women in every sphere of life, in medicine, in law, in business, and in the arts. This is the great shortfall of today. So we've sort of been conditioned to think like this. If you have musical skills and you really want God to use you, you have to use them in the church. Or if you have teaching skills, and you really want God to use you, you have to use them in the church. If you have administrative skills, then you have to use them in the church. But that's not what we see here with Joseph. We see him in Potiphar's house, uh, the, the captain of the guard in this sort of secular environment. I love what Martin Luther says about this idea um, of God using uh, the normal and the ordinary and the mundane. And by the way, as I read this, be aware, Martin Luther got in a lot of trouble for writing this during the Reformation because it, it definitely threw some shade at, the, uh, at those who were in positions of power in the Catholic Church at the time. He said, it looks like a great thing when a monk renounces everything and goes into a cloister, carries on a life of asceticism, fasts, watches, prayers. On the other hand, it looks like a small thing when a maid cooks and cleans and does other housework. But because God's command is there, even such a small work must be praised as service to God, far surpassing the holiness and asceticism of all monks and nuns. For here there is no command of God, but there God's command is fulfilled that one should honor father and mother 
and help in the care of the home. It follows from this argument, Luther wrote, that there is no true basic difference between laymen and priests, princes and bishops, between religious and secular, except for the sake of office and work, but not for the sake of status, since before God. They are all of spiritual estate. They are all truly priests, bishops, and popes, but they do not all have the same work to do. And like I said, Martin Luther got in a lot of trouble for that. Because he's basically saying that the, you know, the basket weaver and the fisherman uh, is no less spiritually before God than the Pope and priests and monks and nuns. He, what he's really saying is, in the New Testament, under grace, there is no wall between sacred and secular. And, and yet we put a wall there, don't we? We have this divide between sacred and secular as if there's a sacred part of my life and then there's this secular part of my life. I go to church on Sunday and I, maybe I get up and I, I you know, do my Bible reading plan in the morning. I go to a group. That's my sacred life. And over here is my secular life, my job, my work, my, you know, whatever, my hobbies, um, this community that I'm, that I'm a part of uh, within the community, whether it's, you know, political or athletic or academic in some way. That's called dualism. It's, it's putting a wall up between those things that, that simply does not exist in the New Testament. The Bible says, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So in the New Testament, there is no dualism. We are not to think that way. The way we are to think is that all things are sacred. All things are worship. All things are useful for the glory of God. When Jesus died on the cross, the temple veil was torn in two, meaning that the presence of God that was isolated in the temple, in, deep inside the temple, in that place of the, called the Holy of Holies, the temple veil that separated that spot from the rest of the temple and the rest of the world was torn in two, meaning God's presence has gone out from there and now dwells in the hearts of those who live by faith in Christ. I mean, how do you think the early church grew from being, you know, an Amish-like fringe movement to the most powerful force in the world? Uh, you, you th think of it like that. Like, think of how we view the Amish today. You know, they're, they're sweet people. I've met a lot of Amish. When I lived in New York, there's a lot of Amish people around us. But nobody looks at the Amish community in America and goes, wow, they're going to be, they're going to take over the world, you know, within, uh, within a generation. Uh, that's probably how they would have viewed the Christians, this sort of this fringe group that was odd. They were, they were, you know, anti-establishment as far as cultures and traditions. They, they believe things the rest of the world didn't believe. They taught things the rest of the world didn't teach. They practiced things the rest of the world didn't practice. And people probably looked at them like maybe we look at the Amish in our society. Uh, maybe a lot of people thought they're sweet, they're great, they're nice, but they're, they're not going to take over the world. And yet the church grew from being a fringe movement to one of the most powerful forces in the world, how did that happen? They didn't believe in a wall between sacred and secular. They engaged their, their little pockets of, in the community that they lived in, their pockets of lostness, they engaged them for Christ. And the basket weaver saw that as a gift from God to engage other basket weavers for Jesus, the fishermen among the fishermen the street vendors among the street vendors. And they all began to engage their world and the church began to grow and grow and grow and grow. And it, and it took over society. And by the time you get to the fourth century, you see Christianity declared as, as uh, the church 
the Church of Rome through Constantine. In Genesis 12, God told Abraham, through your descendants, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And here's what's crazy about the story of Joseph here. The very first fulfillment of that prophecy that God gave to Abraham was Joseph. And it wasn't someone called to be a prophet or a priest or a minister. I mean, he uses Joseph here to be a very successful businessman. And eventually, after he's brought into the palace with Pharaoh, a very successful government leader. That's how God is using him. And the reason is that's because Joseph knows how to use his power and influence for the glory of God. I want you to be encouraged today. God can use us in every sphere of life to do amazing things if you relate to power and influence like Joseph did. Tim Keller says this, Joseph used power, but was not used by power. He took up power, but he was not taken up with power like Potiphar's wife was. In St. Augustine's work, The City of God, he writes about the idea of two cities. The whole thesis of his work is that there are two cities, that in every city, there's two cities. There's a heavenly city and an earthly city. In Clarksville, there's two cities, a heavenly city and an earthly city. And the mark of heavenly citizens, wrote Augustine, is love of God, that we do what we do for the glory of God to demonstrate his glory to our city. But the mark of the earthly city is love of self. We consume our resources on ourselves and on our appetites, like Potiphar's wife did. So the practical difference between the two cities that Augustine wrote about are how they use power and influence, how those who live within those cities use power and influence. And Augustine made the point that the citizens of the heavenly city actually make the best citizens of the earthly city because in every area they go, they're using power and influence to bless others not to serve themselves. Now, that is not easy. That is a temptation not to do that. It's extremely difficult to take up power and not be taken up with power. We hear examples of this all the time as people become famous and they begin to get a I'm better than the rest of the world mentality. I mean, I heard about a a famous uh, NFL player uh, who wouldn't even allow some of his workers to look at him because he saw himself as so far above them. You know, we are not made to receive glory in a way where it is uh, not deflected back to God. We become boastful and arrogant. We, we become prideful. We become selfish. We spend our power and influence on ourselves. There's lots of other athletes in the news even this week who clearly see women as sex objects and use their power and influence to conquer as many women as they can. It's disgusting and terribly sad, but that is human nature. We, we struggle with the temptation of power. On the other side, when we use it for the glory of God, it can reshape our world and it can radically change the lives of those around us. I'll give you an example. Um, and I try to think of some other examples uh, other than what I'm going to share with you. But uh, Tim Keller shared a story that I thought, man, it, it doesn't get much better than this story to show how God can use us in the marketplace. There was a, a certain business in, in New York City. Let me back up. He, he was talking to a woman after his uh, one of his church services. And he said, well, how did you hear about uh, Redeemer 
Presbyterian which in Manhattan, where he was a pastor at the time. And uh, she said, well, let me tell you the story. And she told the story of how uh, she had done something at work in Manhattan that was, uh, that would have gotten her in big trouble. And um, like probably lose her job trouble. But uh, an older member of that company heard what she did and he took the fall for her. He went to, you know, the authority, the authority above him and above her. And, and he said, uh, it was my fault. And uh, he wasn't let go. He had more, uh, sort of more capital in the in experience in the company than she did. So uh, it was a hit for him, but uh, he didn't lose his job like, like she would have. But, you know, it was, he, he, he took some heat for that. And so she found out about it. And they didn't even know each other that well. And she went to him and she said, why did you do that? And he said, you really want to know? She said, yeah. And he said, well, Jesus Christ showed me unconditional love and gave himself for me. And that's how I want to live my life. And when I heard what you did, I knew I had more capital in the company than you did. And I knew I probably wouldn't lose my job like you would. Um, so I decided I'll, I, would, I would take the hit for you. And um, she, her next question was, where do you go to church? <laughs> That's how Tim Keller met her. She ended up going to Redeemer uh, Presbyterian and <clears throat> gave her life to Christ. Do you see how that, that brother used his power and influence to serve others, to bless others? <clears throat> God's called all of us who follow Christ to live in the same way. The Bible says Jesus was tempted in all manner such as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was also tempted by power. Satan offered Jesus the kingdoms of the world, but he offered it to him without a cross. And we see that in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Listen to the way Jesus was tempted by power. <clears throat> Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The crazy thing is Jesus would eventually uh, receive the kingdoms of this world and their glory. I mean, the Bible says that the kingdoms of this world belong, belong to the, our God and his Christ, and that the, of the increase of Jesus' government, there would be no end. And so he would obtain these things, but through the cross. Because if he obtained them here, it would have been for himself would have been for his own appetites and his own glory. But because he went through the cross, it was for your glory and mine. It was for our salvation. So Jesus used his power and influence like Joseph to bless others. He came low like Joseph. He took the blame for us like Joseph. And Jesus is our truer and better Joseph. And where Joseph went unwillingly. Jesus went willingly when he said to Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. And aren't you glad? Aren't you grateful that Jesus showed us such amazing love, amazing grace? And what does he want from us? He wants us to just receive it. It's a gift. You can't earn a gift. Matter of fact, if you earn, if you earn something, work for something, it ceases to be a gift. And the Bible calls salvation from Jesus, a gift. But if you 
work for it. It's a paycheck. It's not a gift. Salvation is not a paycheck. What Jesus gives us, the salvation he gives us, is not a reward to the righteous. It's a gift to the guilty. And so I invite you to come because Jesus invites you to come. Jesus used his power and influence to give of himself so that we could come to the Father and know his life so we could be blessed. Some quick and brief application for this message as I close. Number one, I want to encourage you to convert your secular vocation, your job, your sport, your position, or your influence. Convert all of that into a sacred vocation. Convert your world into not something secular, but something sacred that you use to worship and glorify God and serve others. Belief determines practice. And so because we believe that we exist for the glory of God and we don't believe in dualism, we believe all things are sacred and all things are holy, we can do everything for the glory of God. Matter of fact, I remember uh, my daughter Joy, who a lot of you know is a college wrestler, um, you know, high-level wrestler. She plays second in the NCAA the last two years. Um, She's really good at what she does. But when she was younger in her career, she struggled with a lot of anxiety around uh, her, around sports and around wrestling. And, you know, we just preached the gospel to that part of her heart in that area of her life. We said, listen, when you, when you go on the mat and you can apply this to anything, when you go to work, when you step on the basketball court, when you um, engage in this context, when you do it, the motive, the biblical motive that we ought to have is worship, that we do what we do for the glory of God. So, and if that's your motive, then every time you step on the mat, you can accomplish that. But if your motive is to win every time, you can't necessarily accomplish that every time. So no wonder you're going to avoid competitions if you're afraid of losing, of risking the loss of the thing you love most, which is winning, which is crazy. If you idolize winning and you idolize achievements and accolades and trophies, you might actually compete less, not more, because you're afraid to risk losing the thing you love the most. But if you're motivated by the glory of God, that'll be a radically different experience because you can accomplish that in your wins and your losses. And you can do what you do for the, simply for the joy of it, not for some outcome. And that radically changed her heart. She testifies of it now in her testimony. And I remember seeing her uh, at nationals as a freshman, her first time she qualified for college nationals. And we went there. And of course, as mom and dad, we're nervous. And oh, man, how's this going to go? And she's just like, Dad, I haven't got a care in the world. She goes, I'm just glad to be here. I'm glad to wrestle. Uh, glad to have the opportunity. And I'm glad, you know, that I can go out there and just glorify God with this sport. I was just like, man, I need to think like that. I need to be motivated like that as a parent. And um, you could just see how her belief determined her practice and how believing, believing that all things are for the glory of God, being motivated uh, by using her power and influence to, to, to serve God and glorify God and bless others absolutely changed the whole experience of what she was doing. Okay, so number one, convert your vocation, your context into a, secular, into a sacred context. Number two, bless others with your power and influence. Ask the Lord, how can I bless others with what I'm doing? And he will give you wisdom to show you how you can be a blessing to others where you work, where you live, where you, where you interact with people in the community. And finally, number three, and it's related to all these, resist the temptation to use your power merely to meet your own needs. Remember Christ, who 
although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to hold on to, but emptied himself and made himself nothing. Let's make ourselves nothing as well so that we can bless and serve others in our community. Let's pour ourselves out so that we can serve others as well and not simply use our power and influence just to fill our own appetites and our own bank accounts, our own selfish desires. Let's remember Christ who loved us with grace so that we could serve and love others with that same grace and love. Thanks for watching today. I hope you're encouraged by this series and by this message. And uh, as you go out into the world this week, above all things, remember, Jesus is enough. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.